fourth sermon of a 15-part series on Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth entitled, the series entitled, Good News in the Midst of the Slavery of the Prevailing Culture. And I hope that all of you uh, find something worthwhile in this sermon, but especially our graduates. I'm speaking to all of us today, but our graduates, I think you'll find some things in here that will speak to you as well. We're in the fourth chapter, and I'll read the first seven verses for us. And this is where Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, Each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? as if you did not receive it. In Herman Hesse's novel entitled Journey to the East, there's this group of people that are on a pilgrimage of sorts, and one of the main characters is a servant to this group by the name of Leo, And Leo is one of those types of of individuals who's liked by everyone. You know, he just has that kind of natural charisma. And not only does Leo take care of, of all the menial chores he has in front of him with great success, but he also seems to emotionally sustain this group with his positivity as they travel journey is going really well until one day all of a sudden Leo disappears without warning and pretty soon chaos is rampant without Leo around and eventually this whole adventure just sort of seems to collapse before their very eyes because without Leo the group finds that it cannot discovery is made that Leo, the person whom they had known and treated as their servant, was actually the head of the organization that sent them on the trip in the first place, and that this trip had been a test of sorts which they had failed miserably. actually their leader. 
text today, we can see that the Apostle Paul does not want these Corinthian Christians to fail miserably. And we can see that he understands what his position really is as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just like in Hesse's novel, his leader is a servant of Christ. And we need to hear that from time to time. We need to remember those words of Jesus that we can find in Matthew 20, where he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Young people and all of us gathered here, we see the basic two choices in life. We seek to be those who will serve, or we seek to be those to serve. And Jesus points out what Christian people and what the Christian church is to be all about. And, you know, those verses give us not just this emphasis on servanthood, but also uh, the gospel in miniature, if you will, because he calls himself there a ransom for many. So he's pointing us toward the good news of the gospel. The fact that when a ransom is paid, it's redeeming someone. And so we see the gift of redemption in that word ransom. Normally in ancient times, it was the, the price paid to redeem, to set free a slave. And you and I have been set free from sin because of the redemption, the ransom paid by Jesus Christ in His sacrifice on the cross for our sins. But He makes it clear That's why the Apostle Paul can, can write what he does in Philippians 4, that famous passage where he says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on, but emptied himself, taking the form of what? A servant. This servant image of who God is in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, is what develops the job description for you and for me and for every person who is a member of the kingdom of God. And we see this description right here in our first verse. When Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We can see in these words the truth that being in ministry, whether we're a pastor or a teacher, an elder or a deacon, a women's ministries board member, or, or someone who's, you know, we're just, we just consider ourselves to be a member of the church. Whatever we are is not some sort of status, but our purpose is service. We are servants of Jesus Christ first and foremost. If this is true of the Apostle Paul, surely it's true for you and me as well. And this word translated as servant here in the Greek is not the typical Greek word we find uh, that is typically translated as servant or slave. Instead, it's a word that's more general in nature, having to do with the notion of working under someone 
for their good, like someone who would administer the affairs of another. And we can take this meaning for that word servant because of the second word Paul uses here when he says we're stewards of the mysteries of God. That is to say we're stewards of all that God has revealed to us in the good news of the gospel. For an illustration of that word steward, just think about the story of Abraham that we find in Genesis 24. You know, obviously Abraham was like uh, many of us when we have grown children. He was ready for some grandchildren. And so he he told uh, his uh, steward that he wanted him to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. We can read there, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he being that while we may have some authority as those in ministry and those belonging to the kingdom of God, we are still servants. And Paul takes pains here to make sure that these Corinthians, uh, that, that they understand that and that they know that because they seem to have forgotten it. And we see that in the rest of this chapter 4. Had we read on down fourth chapter, we would have seen Paul chastise them with great irony when he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. You see, you and I have this same slavery to the prevailing culture in our day that the Corinthians did in theirs. As Donald Messer puts it in his book, Contemporary Images of Christian Ministry, the idea of servanthood as the pathway to power, greatness, and leadership is as paradoxical and absurd to us in our day as it was to the people in biblical times. Graduates, you know the way their world and our world sees greatness is the proverbial Everybody wants to be on top. Everybody wants to work as hard as they can to get to the top. And they don't care who they throw out of the way on their way up. That's the world's idea of greatness. And yet, as George Buttrick once put it, Christ's idea of greatness is like an inverted pyramid. The nearer to the peak, the greater the burden. a leadership style or a style of living in the kingdom of God, it's not just for a prophet, and it's not just for elders and deacons, and it's not just for us as individual members, but it's for the church as a whole. Think about how many of the so-called servant songs of Isaiah that we typically say are talking about the Messiah, and they are, but they can also be ascribed to Israel as a whole, as the church of the Old Testament. They're to be that servant, just as we, the church today, are to be that servant. 
we can see within the good news that Jesus proclaims a, a vision of God's people as a servant church. And this is the type of truth that would lead Dietrich Bonhoeffer to say in his letters and papers from prison that the church is the church only when it exists for others. Or as Martin Luther King Jr. put it in a speech shortly before his assassination, he said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. And when our souls have been generated by love, we don't mind as much serving others, though it still kind of grates against our sinful nature, doesn't it? It it grates against that old life that we've tried to put off and yet still holds on to us so tightly from time to time. And the Apostle Paul understands this tension, this tension between us trying to be a servant and wanting to be a servant, to follow the example of Jesus, and at the same time wanting to be served. And so he encourages us toward being trustworthy here in verse 2 of our text. You know, lots of times in my pastoral prayers you'll hear me pray something like, God, make us faithful in in what you've called us to do. And, And that's what Paul is talking about here at this point in the text. He's saying to these people that he loves and yet finds so exasperating, he's telling them to exercise faithfulness. Because while God does expect fruitfulness, he's not nearly as concerned with our fruit as he is with our being faithful, because when we're being faithful, we're following his example. We're doing what he wants us to do. And so we don't really need to worry about so much being fruitful if we're faithful, typically, the fruitfulness will follow. And if you want a biblical example of someone I think was faithful and yet didn't show any fruit for their ministry, think about the prophet Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet, who, who prophesied faithfully all the words that God told him to tell to Judah and the city of Jerusalem, and, and they didn't care anything about it. They didn't want to listen. They didn't do what Jeremiah called them to do. So we could say that was a fruitless ministry. And yet he was a faithful prophet to God. That's why we don't always need to pay attention to what others say about us. You know, in this day of social media, young people especially are familiar with all of this, how uh, people are going to say all kinds of things about you online. You know, they're going to say, point, among others, with verse 3, as he returns to the theme of judgment, judgment which we saw in last week's text as well. And notice that Paul quickly speaks here of three judgments that every person
us face. And the first is that we face the judgment of others around us. Chuck Swindoll says that when we serve the Lord, especially in a capacity that's very visible, our every action will be judged. Some will praise us and some will criticize us. I've tried to mentor young preachers through the years, and one of the things I tell them is if you don't have a a duck's back that will just let things roll off, you better manufacture one. Because if you're in the ministry, people are going to praise you for that and you're going to fail. Swindoll goes on to say we should dwell on neither response, not the praise or the rejection. Because he says if we don't, we'll become like the Pharisees intent on pleasing people while giving the impression that we are serving God. Well, the second judgment we have to face is when we judge ourselves. Paul tells us that's not a good thing here because we tend to be biased in the judgment we give. Now, I know you all are biased. Anyway, I can tell you, I know that I am most times. When he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, there in verse 4, Paul is talking about his conscience. In other words, his conscience is not condemning him in any action, but that really doesn't mean anything because he says what really matters is that God is going to judge us. So don't worry about what your conscience is saying. You know, in our individualistic society, as one person put it, the cliche, let your conscience be your guide sounds almost like biblical wisdom, but Paul is making the point here in verse 4 that it is not. You know, our conscience shouldn't be our guide. Scripture should be. Then he goes on to say it's the Lord alone who has the authority to judge, and that's the final judgment you and I must face, and it's the only one that really means anything. For Paul says that the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden and will disclose the purposes of the heart, what you and I have really thought in our heart of hearts. That will be disclosed at the final day. Remember, as 1 Samuel 16 teaches, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In other words, Judgment Day will tell all that needs to be told. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, as one person put it, on that day there will be three surprises in heaven. One who's there, two, those who aren't there, and three, that you and I are there. Then in verse 6, Paul goes on to give a warning. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I've called this a warning, but it's also a verbal spanking, if you will. Obviously, the Corinthians had added to the teaching or the training they had received from the Apostle Paul. And Paul's saying you can't go beyond what is written because me and Apollos, we haven't done that. And so you shouldn't either. 
he's talking about. He's talking about the spiritual disciplines, not to go beyond what is written. We have to remember what Paul will tell them in his 15th chapter. I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accord with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accord with the Scriptures. All that Paul had taught them had been received. That's a technical term there. this teaching from Jesus himself when he was converted on the Damascus Road as well as from the other apostles. And I bring this up, and I'm glad that Paul brings it up in the text because it's a problem and a real challenge for us most of the time not to go beyond what is written. And the reason is we think take on the same attitude as our father and mother, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden when God had a verbal agreement with them. There wasn't anything written yet, but God said you can eat from every tree in the garden except this one, and they decided they knew better than God, and so they disobeyed. And and you and I have that same pull on us. We want to go what's beyond. it as such with this term puffed up in our text. This, of course, happens outside the church all of the time, the world going beyond what is written in Scripture. But they can't help it in the sense that they don't know what the Word of God says. They're ignorant about the Word of God. We can't expect them to know what Scripture says and to act like it. But the issue to which Paul speaks is when the church is going beyond what is written. And we know that happens today, and we know that it's happened for generations. The so-called Westminster Divines, they speak to this in the very first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was a problem back then, just one generation after the Reformation. In paragraph 6, we can read the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory. Man's salvation, faith, and life is expressly set down in Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added. We don't go beyond what is written. That's what really keeps us in trouble. We don't do that as a a question for you to think about. How do you go beyond what is written in God's Word, in your life, in your practice, in your lifestyle, in your decisions? Paul says it's pride that causes us to do this. Because when we really think about it, what do we have that we did not receive? God has 
given us so much. How do we repay Him? This is a problem the church has always had, and a careful reading of the New Testament will show us that it wasn't just in Corinth that this problem was going on. The churches of Galatia had the same problem because Paul in Galatians 1 says there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul says, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which was preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul goes on to say there, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ and young people and all the rest of us. That's the crux of the issue. That's the, that's the sure choice. Are we going to please men or are we going to please God? 